We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land throughout Australia on which we are recording. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to The Doyen Interviews, the podcast that speaks to inspiring women from the art, architecture and design world. I'm Bridget Nathan and I'm glad you've tuned in. Thank you also to Anon for the beautiful introductory music. Okay, so hello and welcome to the next guest of the Doyen Interviews podcast. I am lucky to um, be spending a bit of time this morning with Felicity Watson. Felicity is the Executive Manager of Advocacy at the National Trust of Victoria. Felicity, welcome. It would be great if you could explain a little bit about your role and what you do. Hi, Bridget. It's so good to speak to you, long-time fan. So about my role. So I am the Executive Manager of Advocacy at the Trust, as you said. I've been at the National Trust in Victoria for nearly seven years, um, which is probably the longest that I've been at any one organisation. And that's because I really love my job. And I have a really unique role I think in sort of in the heritage and planning sphere which is that um, I I have a team at the National Trust, a small team uh, that I lead that um, works to advocate for the protection of heritage places across the, the whole of Victoria and it's a very broad remit that we have in terms of heritage protection so um, a lot of people when they think of the word heritage think of old buildings and things like that. Um, But we're also looking at Aboriginal cultural heritage. We're looking at intangible values um, that places might have, so places that might be significant to the community for social reasons. We're looking at landscapes that have cultural layers that tell stories about the histories of those places. And we're also looking at places of environmental heritage significance, so things like significant trees, Uh, and environmentally and ecologically significant areas. So it's a very broad remit um, that we have in our role at the Trust. And I think what makes it unique is that we are advocates that are able to engage directly with the communities that value those heritage places uh, to advocate independently within the planning sphere. Mm, that's so, so interesting. Um, I think there's probably a lot that we can talk about in terms of your role and I'm, I'm really interested to hear about um, some of the specific projects or buildings um, that you're talking about. But to go um, backwards a little bit, um, how did this role come about or how did this interest in um heritage um become your focus what did you study and what was your like what's your background yeah that's a really good question and I will go quite a way back in time um um because it is you know it's it's not um the type of job or the type of field that um everybody knows about or that any everybody um might be attracted to be involved in um because it's it's kind of niche in some ways Um, but the way that it came about was kind of by accident and I think that happens to a lot of people um, when they're navigating their careers there are these kinds of um, you know incidents of chance that happen that end up shaping your life in an unexpected way and Mm. um, the way that that happened for me was that I finished high school um, when I was 17 and 
wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I decided to take a year off um, before I went to study at university. And I decided that I wanted to move to Sydney. I was living in the country. I grew up in Grafton, which is in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. Right. So I knew that I needed to get out of Grafton to experience new things and uh, look for new opportunities. Mm. I was going through the Sydney Morning Herald looking at the job ads and found this this little ad for a job in Sydney um, to work at a heritage consultancy firm and they were looking for an office junior and specified that they were looking for somebody with an interest in history. Modern history was my favourite subject at school. My history teacher was a massive influence um, on my thinking and on my interests. And so I thought, well, this sounds like a pretty good job for me. So I had an interview and I ended up getting the job, um, which was at one of the leading consultancy firms in the country, which is um, now known as GML Heritage. I ended up staying there on and off for about eight years um, over the time that I was at university um, studying. So I kind of um, started out there as an office junior producing reports um, but was kind of thrown into this environment where I was surrounded by people who were absolutely fascinating um, and had all of these different skills. So there were heritage architects, there were archaeologists, historians, um, people with experience in the planning sphere. And I, it, I, it sort of panned out that I ended up having all these amazing mentors who really sparked um, this interest in the heritage field in me. Mm, that's amazing. And um, with history, what is it about history that you love? Like is it finding out how things used to be or like what are some of the elements of, um, yeah, like historical narratives that um, inspire you? Yeah, that sounds, it's that seems like a really simple question but I'm not sure that it's something that I have really reflected on too much. I think um, because it's just something that I accept as being, you know, such an important part of my life. But when I think about it, the thing that I love about history is that it helps us to understand what's happening around us in the present day. It connects us to place. And so I'm really interested in local history and um, sort of understanding um, what's happened in specific places in order to feel connected to those places. And um, I, I, I have always been very interested in history. I'm interested in understanding the lives and experiences of people who are different to me, um, whether they might be in a different place or lived in a different time or experienced something um, that I can't really um, comprehend, um, like war and conflict and um, and things like that. I really am very curious to understand um, people's experiences and diverse experiences. And I think that what really drew me to heritage was the way that history is reflected in the landscape and in the built environment and how the, the places that surround us hold those stories and provide us with an opportunity to understand them and 
understand um, things that happened in the past and the way that people lived in the past. And, you know, that isn't always a positive thing. I think, um, you know, there are aspects of history that are really challenging that we need to confront um, in order to sort of reckon with um, the present. Um, but I think that's the power of history and that's what draws it draws me to it. Um, yeah, history is, is such a complex thing <laughs> um, when you're looking at, um, yeah, multiple histories and historical sites. I do you think, um, and I believe there are heaps of reasons, but what's your perspective on why we need to have organisations like the National Trust? Yeah, absolutely. The process of understanding history isn't just looking at what has been recorded, but it's also looking at what is missing or where the gaps are. So often, you know, there are missing perspectives or there are, um, you know, types of, of history that are less well understood and well recorded. And so I think that there's a need to always continually be going back to um, uncover new perspectives and add to the historical record. And I think that in answer to your question, something that um, is really important about organisations like the National Trust and what really drives the people that work for the organisation is a sense of social justice and how heritage protection and heritage recognition um, can contribute to good outcomes for the community and um, positive outcomes in terms of social justice. So, you know, recognising multiple stories, um, bringing people into the consultation process about development. Um, you know, heritage um, is really important, I think, um, within communities to provide a link to our past um, but also provides an opportunity to create new layers for the future as well. So, you know, for example, in Melbourne, um, as you will be aware, the development pressures are, you know, always increasing. We have uh, an increasing population. We've got a need to um, increase the housing that we have um, across the city, um, from the inner city to the middle ring suburbs to our sort of greenfield sites on the outer suburbs. And so in sort of managing that growth and um, catering for those sort of needs that are evolving over time, I think that it's that heritage provides an important connection and sense of continuity for the community as well. And so I think that that is something really important and, um, and most of all, for communities to be able to have a say in that process to articulate the places that are significant to them and why they're significant and to incorporate that into um, the planning process. And that is, I think, um, a really important part of the National Trust's advocacy role. When you're working on projects, what, um, or like on, um, you know, like when you're advocating for the protection of assets or, um, yeah, different parts of our urban environment, what are some of the challenges that you face? I'm lucky to live in Fitzroy North and there's so many beautiful, um, like, heritage homes. <laughs> I mean, that's a very good question and the challenges that we face um, are many. Heritage protection and heritage overlays are often seen as a barrier and as a negative thing rather than as a an opportunity um, 
to create a really amazing outcome at a place. And so, um, you know, educating people about the um, richness that, that Heritage Fabric provides, um, I guess, both clients but also architects as well um, and working with them, I think, is a really important opportunity. I think often the National Trust gets involved in um, development issues at quite a late stage in the process. So um, often we won't get involved until a planning application is actually advertised um, through the council or through Heritage Victoria. And so there hasn't really been an opportunity to um, look at how a heritage can be incorporated in a positive way through the design process from the beginning. And there are definitely architects who do an amazing job of that and who I find really inspiring. So Kirsten Thompson and her team, um, I think, have done some really amazing work at heritage places where they've been able to um, really show a great deal of respect for the heritage fabric and the stories of those places while also introducing really incredible new interventions that are very contemporary and really add a new layer of history to those places. So um, like over at Abbotsford Convent uh, at the Magdalen Laundries, um, which is a really challenging site in terms of its history, it was essentially a place where women worked in slavery um, in these commercial laundries. Um, oh, right. So it's it's got this really challenging history that it's really important to respect um, and in terms of the, the heritage fabric, the fabric tells a really um, important story about that part of the building's history. And I think that the, the work that's been done there um, to restore and reimagine that site has been really respectful and really um, visionary. And so I think that's a really good example of a place where you, you've been able to start with uh, a heritage building that has a very high level of significance and um, introduce some contemporary interventions that um, really add a new layer to that place. Um, Broadmeadows Town Hall was another one that um, Kirsten Thompson Architects did as well and also the stables down at the, the VCA. So, yeah, there have been a few kind of high-profile heritage projects and I've actually noticed this year with the Institute of Architects Awards that there are lots of um, shortlisted projects that are heritage sites and, you know, talking about places like Fitzroy North, obviously there are very strict heritage controls um, in suburbs like that where there's quite a lot of significant um, 19th century fabric that has been protected for a long time. But some of the really interesting architectural work that's happening at the moment are the additions that um, architects are um, creating for these houses to sort of adapt them to 21st century living requirements. And um, there's some really fantastic examples of, um, of really amazing additions happening to heritage houses across Melbourne, but particularly in the northern suburbs. So I think that really shows um, the rich potential of heritage to not um, 
to stop, to not stop change and prevent change from happening, but to be a part of change. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, on that larger civic scale with Broadmeadows Town Hall, um, what were some of the heritage considerations that needed to happen on that project? I am not familiar with the details of that project um, because we weren't involved in that issue, but um, something that's really interesting about town halls, and this is something um, that's come up um, in quite a few different places um, in recent years, is that town halls aren't just architecturally significant, um, which they often are because they were designed to be important civic buildings, but they're also places that people visited, um, have visited throughout their lives for different reasons. Um, that means they have a really strong connection to them. So, for example, you know, going to dances when they were in high school or graduation ceremonies or other kind of civic events um, that people engage with over their lifetime and in different phases of, of their lives. And, and so that's something I think is really important um, to consider in sort of the adaptive reuse of a, a civic building like that. And um, I think that was something that was certainly considered at Broadmeadows Town Hall and also currently um, up at Ballarat, the Civic Hall, um, which is a more modernist building, so not, um, not from the same period, but um, there has been a big... Um, preservation battle up there to save the town hall because people really have this strong connection with it and there's a real design instead of sort of you know bulldozing places to make way for new buildings adapt those existing buildings to sort of retain that rich social connection yeah yeah and for, there's so many reasons to do that sort of stuff in terms of sustainability um and, yeah, the, the experiences that people have. Um, what are some of the things that are on your plate at the moment? Like what sort of um, do you work, like what sort of work do you do? Like is it, um, are there certain areas that you would look after or is it um, like project by project? How does it kind of work? That's a really good question and we it's sort of, come to issues in a range of ways. So um, sometimes it will be um, members of the community getting in contact with us to let us know about an issue that they're concerned about. It might be that a council is undertaking a planning scheme amendment to protect heritage places that we want to get involved in and support. Or it might be places that come under threat um, that, you know, sometimes you're not expecting, but... Um, require you to sort of drop everything and um, sort of get in the weeds and um, try and advocate for their protection. So um, a big project or a big campaign that we're working on at the moment um, has been the protection of mid-century modern heritage in the city of Bayside Council area. Oh, so right. this is something... Yeah, this is something that the Trust has um, been involved in uh, for quite a few years now. It's um, been kind of an ongoing issue um, in in that local area the, um, between the council and the community. So the reason why it's important is because 
Um, the city of Bayside and particularly the suburbs of Beaumaris and Blackrock have probably the richest collection of post-war um, architecture in the state and maybe even oh. in Australia. It was a place where a lot of architects um, sort of relocated uh, because there was cheap land and it was sort of on the fringe of the city um, in the 1960s and the 1970s. And a lot of architects built their own homes there or built homes for clients who were really engaged in architecture and wanted something really innovative. And it was a place where those architects, so people like Robin Boyd and Yunkin Freeman and um, lots of other sort of Peter McIntyre, other leading architects of that period, um, built houses and sort of used that place as an opportunity to experiment. And so it's got this really amazing collection of houses that, you know, individually they're quite significant, but as a cultural landscape and as a place, it is really quite remarkable. And so the appreciation of modernist architecture has certainly been increasing in recent years and um, it's certainly something that a lot of architects are really interested in and um, a lot of people in the design professions and there's certainly a lot of, um, you know, inspiration that that architecture provides for contemporary design today. And so we've been advocating for... Uh, these places in the city of Bayside to be protected. Uh, and we've been supporting a community group down there called Beaumaris Modern who have really been showcasing the amazing design of that area and of the period more broadly um, and raising awareness of that in the community. But a lot of those places have been coming under threat um, because of development pressures and the council has been reluctant to protect them. So we've been sort of engaged in a long um, sort of campaign advocating for council to protect those places. And we were fortunate to um, have a win at council the other night when they committed to undertaking a mid-century modern heritage study, um, which they'd previously put on hold. So making progress there, but it, it's gone on for quite a long time and in in advocacy, it's it often takes a long time to get a result. So a lot of work goes into it over a long period of time. Yeah. And what are some of the um what's what are the, some of the what's some of the reasoning behind why these battles need to happen? Like are you up against um, you know, you sort of mentioned development, so there's the economic um pressures or is it like um you know just just the fact that people are wanting to build new places and might not have that um appreciation um are they the sort of issues that um like all the reasons for why these homes aren't um always respected yeah it's absolutely all of those things and you know certainly you know I think it's important that heritage not necessarily be seen as a negative and as a barrier, but at the same time, applying a heritage overlay to a property obviously does mean that there are constraints on development. And so um, so some people are obviously um, not wanting for that to happen. 
Um, but I think that the good thing about our planning system is that it provides everybody with an opportunity to have a say. So it, it's, you know, it's not that easy to put a heritage overlay onto a property. There has to be a very rigorous assessment of its values um, by an independent expert. It needs to go through a planning scheme amendment process and a planning panel hearing process. And all of those processes provide an opportunity for people to have a say. But I also think that there isn't um, as much of an appreciation of that kind of modernist heritage um, compared to other types of heritage that we have. So, you know, if you're thinking about a place like Fitzroy, nobody would question the, you know, the need to have a heritage overlay on a 19th century workers' cottage or um, or terrace house. Um, that's just kind of accepted now because people see that as heritage. They understand that to be heritage and sort of are accepting of, um, you know, and supportive of the need to protect that as part of our cultural heritage. But I think it's taking a little bit longer for um, people to really appreciate modernist heritage and you know there are lots of different reasons for that um you know one of them I think is time I think you know there are generational shifts in what we appreciate as being of heritage significance um one story that I often tell to illustrate that is that the Royal Exhibition Building for many years in the mid 20th century was under threat of demolition it was derelict it was going to be demolished and it was considered to be an ugly building and a blight on the city at a time when sort of, um, you know, modernist ideals were shaping the city. Well, now that building's on the World Heritage List. So there's been a huge shift in the way that we understand the significance of that place, um, which has occurred as time has passed and, you know, we've had time as a community to reflect on our history and what is significant to us. And I think it's, you know, it's really hard to imagine Melbourne without the Royal Exhibition Building in Carlton Gardens and that incredible precinct um, in the middle of the city. So, yeah, I think it's something that changes over time and we're in a period where modernist architecture is starting to um, to get more appreciation and more um, popular appreci appreciation as well. Um, but it's, yeah, it's something that, that takes time to happen. Yeah, I think that the principles of good design that underpin those, um, those places is what makes them so great but also so timeless as well. Um, and they still seem quite contemporary even though um, a lot of them are decades old. And it's really interesting to, I think we can learn some really, um, good lessons about good design from looking at these houses, the use of sunlight, um, the way that many of these houses um, sort of face into the landscape or a courtyard or incorporate um, the landscape outside the house into um, the experience of being inside the house as well. And also, you know, many of them have, you know, custom joinery and, you know, beautiful details that are really wonderful and really elevate the experience of, of living in those places. I think also one of the challenges is that many 
of those significant modernist houses face inwards. They don't necessarily have a presence at street level. Um, and so that makes it difficult to get an appreciation of them from the outside. I think a lot of them were kind of designed um, to have a bit of a sort of to not really have a strong interface with the street um, but to, to face inwards. And so it's it's more difficult to kind of, um, I guess, cultivate an appreciation of that style of architecture because unless you've actually been inside the houses and experienced what it's like um, to be inside them, it, it's more difficult to appreciate than, you know, say a 19th century um, house that you can see from the street. Mm, yeah, that's such a good point. And I also think as architects and designers or, um, you know, historians or, you know, people who are um, interested in architecture and trained in it and understand, like, who've seen the vault, like, many, many houses, I think it's, like, sometimes easy like I always forget when I'm talking to people that they don't have that same understanding and they might not be aware of like if you're buying a home, um, like people might not be aware of like really the narrative behind it or why one home is particularly valuable as opposed to a new property. Um, they might be just like, um, yeah, they might have other concerns on their plate um, and they might miss things that are actually really valuable. Um, I also really liked what you were talking about when you mentioned, um, yeah, like heritage considerations, not just being buildings, um, also being sites. Are there any, um, have there been any influential projects that you've worked on or um, like sort of site conscious um, uh, I don't know, considerations that you've like come across? Yeah, there have been been quite a few interesting places and I think that as, um, you know, people who work in heritage and, you know, people who work in architecture as well, I think to begin with we always need to be conscious that we are on Aboriginal land and we are on land that has been occupied for tens of thousands of years and cultivated and shaped. And so um, there are you know, really important values in um, the the landscape everywhere in terms of the traditional owners and in terms of Aboriginal heritage values. And so something that we have um, done at the National Trust is to start a process of um, doing reconciliation action plans where we embed um, the sort of principles of reconciliation within our work, um, both within our advocacy, but also uh, in in terms of the way that we manage our properties and our collections as well. So that's been something that has been something that I've been trying to work um, towards and to become more conscious of um, over my career and particularly during my time at the Trust. And one really interesting project that um, I worked on an advocacy issue that I worked on was in regard to a significant cultural heritage site for the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people um, in Sunbury. And so this was a really is a really significant archaeological site. It's probably 
of national significance um, in terms of its cultural value and certainly, you know, incredibly significant to the Wurundjeri. And it's in an area that has been identified as being a an urban growth area. And so there was this um, uh, a process um, where the Victorian Planning Authority was looking at rezoning land in that area for housing and um, what they needed to do was to take into consideration all of the significant heritage values of that area. And so when you looked at the site, it kind of looks like it's it's a valley along Jackson's Creek. Um, and when you look at the site and when you're there, if you don't understand the history of it, you, you can't really read that landscape. But I had the fortunate experience of being able to go on a guided tour with a Wurundjeri elder where they were able to point out the features of the landscape and provide an understanding of how you can read that landscape and why it's important. And so that really informed um, our advocacy work on that issue and we did that in consultation with the Wurundjeri and what was what we were advocating for was for um, those cultural sites um, along the valley to remain interlinked visually but also physically as well. Um, and it was a really, I think that was probably the first time that I got involved in an issue um, that included um, those really rich Aboriginal cultural heritage values and the first time that I engaged with a traditional owner group as part of our advocacy. So that's that's really been a fascinating aspect of my work is sort of learning, um, speaking to people who value places and learning how to read them to understand the cultural values that they hold. Mm, yeah, that's so interesting to hear you talk about that. Did you have any comments about, um, like, the current um covid situation and like adaptation like how how has it been for your office working um have you been working remotely through this period yeah we have so our team has been re- working remotely since late march so it feels like a long time now and i'm kind of used to it but um it it has changed things a lot um usually we would be out and about on site a lot visiting places and, you know, going to events and things like that. Um, but we've really had to sort of, you know, rein it in and, and do everything that we do um, from home and remotely. But what I found really good is that, like, community engagement is a big part of our role and, you know, meeting with the community to provide them with support on issues. And remote technology has really made that very possible and has been working quite well for us, I think. Um, but we're really looking forward to getting back into the office and um, and back out on site and visiting places because I think the one thing that you miss when you're working remotely is just those incidental conversations that you have with people, you know, when you're making a cup of tea or, you know, something happens and you go and tell someone about it. Um, I think there's a lot of value in those interactions and it's certainly something that I've been missing. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's also common, like, in design. It's being around people and hearing what they have to say. It's the unplanned, um, yeah, like the conversational things that come up um, that can really shape your understanding of things. Um, Oh, well, yeah, good luck. (laughs) Hopefully that it, it all gets back up and running soon. So, Felicity, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing, um, yeah, what, what you keep working on. Thanks, Bridget. It's been so good talking to you. Wow. Thank you, Felicity. Um, I really enjoyed listening to this podcast and learning a little bit more about your ideas on history and your background. Um, next week, we'll be chatting to Claire Martin, who is a landscape architect. I hope that you can join us then for a, another um very educational episode as we step outside of our usual focus which is talking to leading architects. In this conversation we'll learn a little bit about what a landscape architect does and some of the things that uh, Claire has been involved in throughout her career. It's a very broad profession so it can be you know in some ways some people do specialise, other people are quite generalist in terms of their and the vocation. So I think certainly our institute represents members who are students, graduates, they're researchers, academics, um, there might be private practitioners, people who work in government. So a landscape architect could be involved in the designing and planning, but they can also be involved in the procurement of projects.